Welcome to the Energy Fellows podcast, where each episode is designed to share expertise and experiences from U.S. and global energy fellows. They provide direction and possible solutions for ultimate journey results. Here's your host, Mark Stansberry. Enabling best-in-class customer experience and operational excellence in a hyper-connected oil and gas world, TCS prioritizes problem-solving and leverages customer insights to drive real business results. To find out more, go to TCS.com. That's TCS.com. Welcome to another episode of the Energy Fellows Podcast. I'm Mark Stansbury, your host, and we're going to talk about our upcoming guest in just a second and introduce him. But before we do, I want to mention about the uh, documentary, Short Force Top Secret. Go to PBS.org to watch that. I uh, hope you will do so if you have, haven't seen it. And if you have seen it, you may want to go back and see it again. Also, uh, the book, America Needs America's Energy and Its Natural Resources, is actually a monograph to the book, America Needs America's Energy, Creating Together the People's Plan, the Energy Plan. So if you will, go to that on Amazon and Barnes & Noble as well. Column in Oilman Magazine, I have a column. And if you go to that, Woman Magazine, each issue, uh, have a uh, contributing editor to that and for going on 10 years now. So I really appreciate Emmanuel Sullivan and Woman Magazine, Rebecca Ponton and others. If you will go to show notes for a rate and review, we'd love to hear from you. Please rate our program, review it, give us ideas what you'd like to hear, and we'd like to hear some great news from you. Also, on the show notes, if you will, go to the survey. It takes about 10 seconds or less to fill out. And when you do, we'll send you uh, stickers for your hard hats or your laptop, whatever you want to use it for as well. And I want to thank uh, OGGN, the team, and especially the sponsors for supporting us in the many ways that they do. Well, we have with us today someone that's uh, been on our show, our podcast before. He's a definitely uh, great oil and gas figure in Oklahoma. He's done so many things for not only the industry in as far as the nonprofit world, but also has been an attribute to all of us when it comes to activity in Oklahoma and our surrounding states. We welcome David Guest. David? Well, good afternoon, Mark. It's a pleasure to join you today. Yeah, it's wonderful. I look forward to this. I look forward every time to visit with David. <laughs> He's uh, always giving us some great information. And I know there's several listeners that probably have heard about David Guest and heard the previous program that he was on. But David, if you give just a brief bio of yourself, of Guest Petroleum, and what you do and what you're doing as far as in the profit world and the nonprofit world. Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, be on the show today. I'll try to make my intro very brief. I'm fortunate to grow up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, the original oil capital of the uh, United States and the world. So enjoyed growing up in Tulsa. I am a small independent producer. Guest Petroleum's a family company started by my father and passed down to myself and brother and sister. And I uh, have the fortune to have the opportunity to run the day-to-day operations. Also, I am a certified minerals manager and through the National Association of Royalty Owners. And it's one of the uh, nonprofit groups that I know you through, Mark, through the National Association and also the Oklahoma State Chapter of the Multi right. Owners Group. So it's always been a pleasure to see you at those functions. And currently, I'm also involved with the Oklahoma Energy Producers Association, which stands up for the vertical well producers. And typically, we're family-owned companies and multi-generational companies. So we are 
trying to advocate to keep the marginal well and lower volume oil and gas wells producing within the state of Oklahoma. And also, uh, you've contributed to so many other organizations as well. We appreciate you, David, for all you've done for our state and our region and our nation, as far as that goes. It's wonderful all that you've done. I uh, wanted to really talk about issues in our state, especially, that you've been involved with, the issues that came up before the legislature this previous session, and what's going to be happening after the first of the year, 2024, and give your perspectives on that. because. You know, we're challenged in so many different ways right now in, in our state and nation when it comes to workforce development, to make sure that we have energy security, to make sure that we have everything in place for a 24-7 operation for our nation and for all the citizens and all the activities that we have. And you've got some information I know that you can share with us as to what happened in the past legislative session and also what's ahead of us. Absolutely. Here in Oklahoma, it was fairly quiet at the Capitol regarding oil and gas. There was a few issues that were addressed, some cleanup at the Oklahoma Corporation Commission, the rules of practice. There were some other issues at the Capitol going on outside the energy spectrum that uh, probably caught the media's eyes for the most part. But, you know, I kind of want to bring in the uh, federal level here. I know you'd ask about an update on ESG and methane emissions, and that's going to tie in with what's going on at the state level because everything is filtering down from the federal level to the state level across the nation. Right. ESG continues to be a concern to the energy industry as financial institutions are still avoiding U.S. oil-filled investments, and that seems to be a concern you know, from the uh, top down all the way from uh, providing capital for drilling companies, for supply companies, all the way down through the producers and to the small independent producers having access to capital to work on wells or maybe drill additional wells. And the access to capital affects the supply houses and not just the supply chain that we hear, but what we know is the supply houses that are out there in the field and their availability to keep their uh, shop fronts open. And you mentioned the workforce, you know, still trying to find people that will come to work and uh, enjoy the industry. You know, it's hard to pull in the younger generation into the oil and gas industry because it is a rather labor intensive inside, outside, hot and cold sometimes. And whether you're in the, an office guy or if you're a, a rig hand. So as you mentioned, workforce development is an issue here in Oklahoma. But turning back to ESG, I'll just kind of mention there has been 2023 has kind of seen a boost in the anti-ESG attitudes. However, the climate activist investors are still assembling voter blocks within the large investment firms like Rock, State Street, Vanguard, J.P. Morgan et al. So that's still making it very difficult. But I will say again here, let's begin at the federal level. President Biden did veto anti-ESG investment legislation. It was his first veto of his presidency back on March 20th of 2023. Mm -hmm. In doing so, he was rejecting legislation that sought to avoid the Department of Labor's rule allowing fiduciaries to consider ESG factors when choosing retirement investments. So, you know, it's a balancing act trying to appease the activist investors, yet still trying to maintain the highest rate of return for those funds. So that is quite the balancing act that's going on. There has been a kind of counter proposal to this veto by the president. 
There has been a new proposed legislation filed in the Senate on June 22nd. Senate Bill 2147 is a, a bill to amend Title V of the U.S. Code, and that would make uh, to prohibit investments under the Thrift Savings Plan in certain mutual funds that make investment decisions based primarily on environmental, social, or governance criteria. So again, at the federal level, it still remains a tough road to hoe trying to balance the needs of the climate change people, as well as trying to maintain access to capital in the oil and gas producing areas. At the state level, in the past uh, 2022 and into 2023, there's been over 200 ESG and anti-ESG bills have been filed in state legislatures and assemblies across the country. This has kind of set up a battle between the legislators, the state treasurers, and the state attorney generals, all playing their independent role and trying to serve their uh, constituents the best. You know, we have the legislators in the red states trying to be anti-ESG, trying to maintain access to capital. The state treasurers are trying to get the best return on those funds that are invested for the pensions for the state employees. And then the attorney generals are trying to, once again, that's a balancing act, mm-hmm. trying to best rate a return, but yet maintain the ability to provide access to capital within the states that actually oil and gas or energy, whatever source that might be, maintain you know, access to capital to keep those industries in effect running and keeping people employed and you know helping maintain those rate of returns for those investment groups. Just kind of a side note, I was on a recent call participant with the Oklahoma State Treasurer, Todd Russ, and he indicated that BlackRock controls the proxy of over 40% of Devon's stock. Mm-hmm. I found that both interesting and troubling. Mm-hmm. I like to think that Devon's an Oklahoma company, but it's the proxy votes are controlled 40%. Actually, I think it's 42% are controlled by uh, non-Oklahoma residents. So that seems to be an issue that we need to be aware of. Quite a session on both the national and state. Anything else to add on that? I would just say that access to banking and all financial services are critical for the stability in the energy sector, whether that be oil, gas, electric, nuclear, hydrogen. We've kind of touched on that in the past. You know, still need access to all forms of this energy. And energy takes investment. And investment is done by private institutions or private individuals. The government doesn't invest. They provide tax incentives, but they don't make the actual investments into future energy sources. So that's a very difficult process to wrap my head around to try and keep a positive attitude about that. But we all need to keep monitoring the ESG game. You know, that's my personal bias, Mark, is it's kind of a, a game. I did see something that came out this morning. was talking about the rate of U.S. carbon emissions fall for the first time in the Biden era, mm-hmm. that the global carbon dioxide emissions were roughly flat through the first five months of the year, with rising greenhouse gases production from China and India, quote, offsetting deep declines in emissions from the U.S. and Europe. Mm-hmm. So these activists are trying to change our way of life in the U.S. and in Europe, all the while while China and India continue to be the biggest polluters. Well, you know, it comes to ESG, for example, I uh, environmental social governance. It's important from the standpoint of what it delivers, potentially, but not 
the way it's being delivered. <laughs> and, you know, it's one thing to say we're observing environmental social governance. I think our industry, the oil and gas industry, has made great strides through the years. Do we need improvement? Of course we do. But I think that could go for about every sector in the U.S. It You can't demand, and, and my, I'm speaking on my behalf here, you know, my personal view, is that you can't demand results. It's got to come through, you know, step-by-step efforts. And at the same time, it can't just be this way it is or else. It just doesn't work successfully that way. And so I feel like we've got some challenges ahead, like you're talking about, David, because uh, we're being guided in a way that may be detrimental or is detrimental to our industry. And that is, I even heard Elon Musk speak recently saying that we need to produce oil and gas and we need to produce more of it right now because he said we're going to need it. And I thought that was interesting because here he is in electric vehicles business in a big way. Uh, Of course, he's also in the space age business too. (laughs) And they definitely need fuel. So the rockets need fuel and so forth. So it winds up that We've got some challenges ahead, and I appreciate you bringing this to the forefront because in, in the legislature, and we're going to have a lot of more debates in Congress, but we need to protect our citizens here in Oklahoma, and I think that's what you're doing and trying to do. But not only that issue, but some other issues. What really came to the top in Oklahoma, a lot of bills, I guess, this year, and what lies ahead beyond ESG and some other issues you might want to bring up? Well, as you mentioned, there were a number of bills. I, I have to chuckle there were over. 2,000 bills filed for the Oklahoma session. And as you know, Oklahoma goes in session every year. You know, we're not lucky like Texas and only has a session every other year. So they cut the damage that's done in half that way. Again, that's my <laughs> personal opinion. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> we got to do the Oklahoma way is what you're saying. I got you. <laughs> or Texas listeners, especially OGGN being based in Houston. <laughs> I'm glad we're giving some activity here so to be listened yeah. to. I'd like to hear more from my fellow Texan friends. Absolutely. And something that's (laughs) going to be very critical to the Texas producers and producers across the nation is the next item that I had on my uh, list to discuss is the methane emissions issue. Now, under the uh, President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, it allocates $369 billion, with a B, Mm -hmm. to improving energy security and achieving climate goals. And we go back to the title of this act, the Inflation Reduction Act. And that's right. You know, you know Mark, you've served in NGO entities and mm-hmm. quasi government industries. I like to think that Inflation Reduction Act, I don't think it's going to do that. It'll probably have the opposite effect under some of those policies of spending so much money. But one section 60113, the act includes methane emissions reduction program. And earmarked is $700 million for marginal wells to be plugged. In the first round, which would have been in late 2022, early 2023, every state in the U.S., all 50 states, would receive money to plug marginal or abandoned wells. In the first go-around, the states either received $5 million or $25 million each qualifying state, which is kind of odd because there are some states in the U.S. that don't have any oil and gas production and don't have any abandoned wells, but yet they will receive some of the money. Right. Once again, the inflation reduction, I don't think, is actually going to be achieved. It's just kind of allocation of tax money at that point. But mm-hmm. having said that, the $25 million that the producing states will receive this last year 
that will rise to $35 million next year. And states have made application. I know Oklahoma and Texas have received that initial $25 million for plugging those wells. Mm-hmm. And going back to through the definitions, methane emissions are defined not only as wells where hydrocarbons, vapors are escaping, such as maybe from casing heads, storage tanks, or separating vessels, but also shut in wells, meaning a gas well that is shut in if a valve that's shut in that's capable of production but may not be producing due to pipeline constraints or other production issues. Under this definition, if a valve is opened and gas flows, then that well is considered to be a methane emission risk. Mm -hmm. Or, again, like I said, that is a shut-in well capable of commercial production, but under the rules, it would be considered for plugging. Mm -hmm. You, as a being involved in the oil and gas industry, you know that a shut-in gas well is not a pollution problem if it's got a valve on it and there's no leakage. So Mm-hmm. I find that a definition, I will use the word ludicrous, and I've said right. that in several meetings. Mm-hmm. And I think there's been agreement from producers that are declaring that definition of methane emission to be unreasonable. Well, and it goes back to, you know, overstepping, overregulating. It's one thing to have regulations. I think we can say regulations in like ESG in itself might not be the issue. It's who's handling the issues of ESG and regulations when it comes to methane, uh, it's gone too far. It's going too far. We need some guidelines. We've got them. Let us drill. You know, let's get active and get our economy back in the oil and gas industry strong. Please continue. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll say that on the national level that even the IPAA president has said that testing rules for this act are seem to be unreasonable. That's to uh, use uh, their language that's based upon engineering models from the 1990s. They need to be updated, but apparently the EPA wants to move quickly rather than uh, using a science-based approach and going back and doing new testing using current methodology, go in the different basins, test oil wells versus gas wells, different environments, different weather types, summer, winter, etc., and see what kind of emissions Current emissions using new testing would reveal probably won't be as damaging as what they purport to be. And kind of transitioning into what this methane emissions issue kind of boils down to being a federal program, it has kind of created the birth of what is called the voluntary carbon market, Mm -hmm. where carbon credits are issued for plugging of wells. But currently, there is no standard of measurement on the carbon credits found out in recent research that there's multiple entities that are out there creating these carbon credits to pay producers to plug marginal wells or even abandoned wells. And they take those carbon credits and they put those on the market for other people to purchase to reduce their tax liability. You know, kind of like the wetlands tax credit has been in years past. But without the standardization of the methodology for measurement of the carbon credits, that's created some questions within that emerging industry that matches the sellers and buyers of the carbon credits from the plugged wells. Carbon credit is based upon how much methane, either measured or calculated, how much methane is prevented from entering the atmosphere after that well or wells have been plugged. So to me, it's kind of obvious that the current federal administration wants to kind of prematurely plug marginal and shut-in wells by incentivizing with federal tax dollars that is going to reduce our energy independence. Because once we lose these wells to plugging, as you know, we never get those wells back. And kind of pivoting back to the ESG, if we don't have access to capital to drill new wells, 
the new wells won't be drilled. So we're just kind of a stranglehold on our smaller production. You know, the, we're blessed to have the horizontal wells that have been drilled in, you know, in the past decade or so that have popped up the U.S. energy industry and made us energy independent. But, you know, those wells decline. The horizontal wells actually have a higher decline than your typical vertical wells. So, mm-hmm. you know, coming up uh, shortly, you know, I don't want to jump on your podcast here and do forecasting, but from other people that I've listened to that mm-hmm. we're going to start seeing some short supplies here, possibly mm-hmm. entering this winter season once we go through the summer. But because drilling rigs are down, completions are down. Permian Basin, you know, Hainesville Shale is still going strong. That seems to be a primary area, but, you know, we have pipeline constraints out there in the Permian. And again, with drilling activity going down, that we're seeing production volumes drop. Again, I don't want to forecast a supply crisis, but I think we're going to see a uh, kind of a uh, pull on the prices due to uh, decreasing uh, supply. Well, I think you're talking about realization. <laughs> you're talking about the facts where we are and the facts where we are are going to lead to potential of what's going to happen. And so with that in mind, I think what you talked about in investments for the oil and gas industry being curtailed because of certain regulations and policies and so forth, that also curtails the workforce development and also attracting great talent and maintaining the talent. And so we're looking at it from a perspective that's going to lead us to very poor conditions when it comes to energy security if we're not careful. We're already heading that way, and we need a strong, and I know we're both emphasizing this, different ways we're doing that, is we definitely want to see a stronger oil and gas industry. It's going to take the oil and gas industry to get us to the future, and a transition may occur sooner than later, but at the same time, we can't depend on that with what we've got right now. We've got too many demands, too many products that come from oil and gas. There's too many people throughout the world that need oil and gas. We'll look at all natural resources, which in my book or monograph we talk about, and compare those. But it's going to be some time, and even when I heard from, you know, when we heard an interview that Elon Musk had, was that he uh, is definitely looking at it from the standpoint that we need oil and gas for at least the current several years. So uh, please go on. I'm, I'm enjoying this. You're catching up with, and the great thing about talking to David Guest, I get to catch up on some things, and I'm glad because listeners need to uh, listen to this and take it to heart and to share some of this knowledge that David shares with us and uh, build a better industry. Well, thank you, Mark. I appreciate those kind and generous words. I don't want to leave the uh, workforce. I'd like to come back to that here in a moment, but you mentioned Elon Musk, and that rang a bell in my head. About transportation, everything moves from energy and everything typically moves to the final destination by truck, especially in the U.S. You know, we have everything arrives by ship that goes on rail, goes to a trucking hub. And then from that trucking hub, it goes to our local grocery stores, goes to our local drug store, goes to our local big box store. And I don't think people realize, you know, they're able to walk in that front door of that retail development and buy whatever they want. And they just don't realize how that product gets there. gets there by transportation. And transportation is funded and performed by energy. And typically that energy is by a hydrocarbon molecule, Mm -hmm. whether that be diesel, natural gas, gasoline, Whatever that may be, it's going to be a hydrocarbon molecule supplying that transportation. And this kind of came to me. Fortunately, my wife and I, we went three years without catching COVID. But here about two, three months ago, we actually finally came down with it together. 
and my wife was prescribed uh, one of the prescriptions. And I just jokingly asked her, I said, well, where did your uh, meds, where were they manufactured? She goes, well, part of it was manufactured in China, and the other part was manufactured in India. (laughs) So I'm thinking, do the people of the United States and Europe realize that when they need medicines, they're not always made on the continent, that they are imported, Mm -hmm. and typically, unfortunately, imported from China and India? I know we have medicines that are made down in the Dominican Republic. Mm-hmm. which is a friendly country, but still there's that transportation factor that has to be transported by air or by ship. Mm-hmm. And once again, we're going back to a hydrocarbon molecule. You know, airplanes don't run on uh, batteries, mm-hmm. at least not cargo airplanes. You know, we've mm-hmm. seen some uh, test airplanes that have done some battery or electric type, but those are not going to be passenger, certainly not freight airlines. Mm-hmm. So people need to Awaken, I know you've talked about the energy awakening. I don't think, I hate to use the word, the general public that may be outside of this podcast. Mm -hmm. It's kind of directed to people within the energy industry. But somehow we need to spread the word that energy is vital to our daily life. Whether that's flicking the switch on the wall for the electric or the hot water tank when we take a shower. Or like I said, our food that we go to the store and get every day that we consume every day, or if it's the medicines that are vital to uh, maintain our lives. You're exactly right. And logistics, transportation, all goes back to the hydrocarbon world in that sense. We definitely need to get the knowledge out. Over 6,000 products or so made, and people are astonished. I know I'd go out to different parts of the U.S., and they found out I'm in the oil and gas industry, so they're, uh, they don't want to talk to me, I don't think. <laughs> but then we get a conversation, I'll ask them, you know, what do you drive? What fuel do you use? What are those glasses made out of? What are those shoes made out of? What's about this shirt, you know? And what about your computer? I mean, I go on and on like that. And then it usually either we continue to converse in a positive way or it just shuts down because the mind's already made up sometimes. But I think a lot of times when I do get in those conversations, it starts into a dialogue that goes, I didn't realize that. You know, I had one friend that had a spouse that was in a hospital, and I had just told that person that you look around, if you're ever in a hospital, look around and see what's made of plastic products and so forth and where they come from in the oil and gas industry. Sure enough, I get a call, and uh, the person said, you know, you're right. I just want to let you know I was in the hospital with my spouse, and that's all we talked about, about the products that came from the energy sector, oil and gas sector specifically, so... David, you're right. I don't want to do this because I'm really enjoying this. And I think the audience is listening to this wonderful episode with David Guest. But we're running out of time. And so I know I'm going to get you back. (laughs) I have to at least request you back, David, because we still need to talk about some issues. I'd love to visit further. But David, if that's a good idea, let's try again uh, next few weeks to get you back home. Can we mention the workforce real quick? I'll try to make it in a minute. Please do. I want you to. I wanted to end on workforce, so let's do that. And then we'll bring you back uh, in the next few weeks. That'd be great. Uh, yes, it would. You mentioned uh, workforce development, and I think on a previous podcast, I mentioned, you know, Oklahoma has the greatest career tech slash votech system in the nation. And I'm a big believer in the career tech system in Oklahoma, so I encourage people, come to Oklahoma, take part of our career tech system. You know, it's been said that, you know, we have plenty of accountants, geologists, engineers, that we need more plumbers, more electricians, more welders, more computer technology. Mm -hmm. Oklahoma has an aerospace 
program in our career tech. We have, you know, like I said, computer programming, robotics, cybersecurity in our career tech. So I just want to point out, you know, we're talking about the recent Supreme Court decision regarding student loans. Well, not everybody has to go to college. You know, some people would flourish in career tech and have wonderful opportunities for excellent income, lifetime income, and a wonderful life having uh, educated within the career tech slash VOTEC system. So again, not everybody needs to go to college, but please think about career tech, though technical education available across the U.S. I know Texas has a great system as well, but I'm promoting Oklahoma today. I'm not on the payroll from the lieutenant governor, who's the uh, ambassador of the state of Oklahoma, but mm-hmm. like I said, we do have amazing career tech systems across the state. And as I mentioned, Texas has may actually have more actual institutions because Texas is a much larger state. But like I said, I just want to throw that out real quick, Mark. People should. Oh, that's explore. wonderful. No, that's wonderful. I'm glad you brought that up because this is the time to do that. There's a need. There's a definitely great future ahead. And we uh, hope to keep that from being demonized in the sense in our in, about our industry because the oil and gas industry is a wonderful industry and very supportive of others. You know, there's different ways to go about entering the workforce. And thanks, David, for bringing that up. And David, thank you for, David Guest, thank you for your leadership in your company, Guest Petroleum, and your leadership in our state and nation. Really appreciate you and appreciate Robin as well. Thank you for being part of this. We'll bring you back for sure in the next several weeks. The future of energy depends on us, depends on all of us. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes of the Energy Fellows Podcast. I'm Mark Stansbury. Thank you so much. Join us again next week on the Energy Fellows Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com. 